What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, coming to you live from downstate New York. I hope everybody is doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. And uh, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys, spending another Tuesday afternoon talking about sports, talking about society, talking about culture. Um, As we know, there's been, as always, there's a lot of shit going on in the world, particularly in America. We have the second round of the NBA playoffs. The NFL draft took place a couple weeks ago, and I'm not going to get into that because I don't know anything about the NFL draft, really. Um, You know, baseball is baseball. That's another thing I don't really follow. Formula One is coming to the United States for the first time this season. They're racing in Miami this coming Sunday, so that's something that I'm exceptionally excited about and of course I'm sure all the drivers are stoked to be a part of it as well and of course for my hockey fans there is the NHL playoffs that are happening I'm not a hockey guy by any means but I am rooting for the Rangers just because I want to see something good happen to New York sports because we are we just suck man straight up New York sports is not good right now Jets are bad Giants are bad the Nets are fraudulent the Knicks are bad um Isles aren't in the playoffs. The Mets and the Yankees are doing well right now, but of course there is a lot of time for both of their seasons to unravel, which of course is always something that I'm rooting for because I don't follow the sport and I just like to watch the anarchy ensue. And of course, um, the biggest the biggest thing that happened over the last couple of days is the leak of the Supreme Court of the United States of America is looking like they are going to overturn the Roe v. Wade super president. That is something that we're going to get into later on in the show. Um, I feel the need to uh, always talk about the basketball and the sporting stories on this show, on this program, whatever you want to call it, because that is what I am. First and foremost, I am a sports guy. I am a sports ball, Andy. And while I do often engage in like societal and cultural critiques i leave that towards the end just because i know that people who are tuning in to this show are tuning in to consume this content they're more than likely coming here for the sport so we're just going to go ahead we are going to get right into it with the second round of the nba playoffs something that all basketball fans are excited for because we have a we have a great 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 round of matchups Milwaukee and Boston played this past Sunday as did Golden State and Memphis those two series look like they can probably be the two best as of right now I'm probably most excited to watch Phoenix and Dallas just because I really do enjoy Luka Doncic and of course Chris Paul Devin Booker that team looks like probably the most title ready team in the Western Conference right up there with Golden State I mean and Golden State and Memphis is going to be an electrifying series as well if game one was anything to go off of of course I don't want to discount Milwaukee and Boston I especially want to see Boston get absolutely brutalized because the Nets couldn't do it so somebody has to do it and the Bucks, with their performance on Sunday without Chris Middleton really 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 impressive and then at the bottom of my at the bottom of my list of enjoyment I'm probably gonna put Boston, not Boston, uh, Philly and Miami, only because there is no Joel Embiid, James Harden and Tyrese Maxey are going to be forced to shoulder a significant portion of the offensive load as Joel Embiid deals with not only a concussion, but an orbital fracture 
I do remember seeing a report that I think there is optimism for him to return a little bit later in the series, I think around games three or four. But then again, he also has that ligament issue that he's dealing with. So Joel Embiid, far from 100% right now. We have James Harden, who is looking washed slower than ever. And it doesn't really look that good for the 76ers. And Monday's game was just further proof that they are going to have to play perfect, perfect, perfect basketball to even keep this thing close for when Joel Embiid gets back. Although Monday for the Sixers wasn't a total just let down. They didn't get, you know, the shit kicked out of them. They didn't lose by 30 or whatever. They lost by 14 to Miami. And in a game where there was no Kyle Lowry, pardon me, did I bring my water up from downstairs? I poured myself water and I, whatever, fuck it. I guess I have no water now. Damn, that fucking. Anyway, this Heat team without Kyle Lowry, without um, Jimmy Butler, who didn't really, well, I mean, not without Jimmy Butler. He played in game one. He didn't play particularly well in game one. I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, take you guys on a tour of the box score, at least for Miami. Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero were the two most productive members of the team. Uh, last night, well, Monday night, it was Bam. It was Bam because he's going up against some combination of Paul Reed, DeAndre Jordan, uh, George Niang, and Paul Millsap. Without Joel Embiid, the Sixers' interior defense is absolutely just non-existent right now, and it's pretty obvious by the fact that Bam had 24 points on eight of 10 shooting, including eight free throws. It was impossible for Philly to guard him, and his proficiency is amplified by his improvement as a playmaker. So even if Philly, who does have, you know, a decent array of defenders, including Danny Green, Matisse Thybul, I mean, Tyrese Maxey is an athletic guy on the perimeter, not exactly a defensive, not exactly a defensive freak by any means, but someone who at least plays hard. And I mean, being successful on defense is half playing hard. Again, I'm not, I'm not looking at Maxey to slow anybody down, but Adebayo's ability to make plays out of the post and facilitate from the top of the key, from the free throw line, from the high post, from really everywhere, adds an extra dynamic to Miami's offense that I don't think the Sixers will be able to combat either offensively or defensively because they tried a whole bunch of different things last night. They played man, they played zone. They, I mean, I was kind of watching on and off, but there were a few possessions. And I think in either the second quarter or the third quarter, uh, it was the second quarter, actually, where Philly just really clamped Miami's offense, holding them to 20 points in the second quarter. And I think, yeah, so Miami put up 20 points in the second quarter on 40% shooting, including one of six from three. Of course, this was amplified by the fact that Jimmy Butler looked absolutely terrible. I don't really know what was going on with him, just had an off game. It would appear uh, 15 points on 5 of 16 shooting, but still was effective in other areas, whether it be on defense, whether it be on the glass. Like When Jimmy Butler finally, I don't want to say finally, acting, I'm acting like this guy didn't just average 30 against the Hawks in the first round, but when Jimmy Butler does get out of this slump that he appeared to be in in game, game one, it's going to take the Sixers even more effort defensively to slow down this Miami this Miami Heat offense that I think is a tad 
underrated. I know that the Miami Heat, despite being the first seed in the conference, they're kind of overlooked by a lot of the national media. And I said that that was kind of bullshit when I was talking about Bam Adebayo for Defensive Player of the Year. And yes, they get a sizable amount of national attention, but compared to some of the other teams in the conference. I mean, really, if you were an Eastern Conference team who wasn't the Boston Celtics, the Milwaukee Bucks, or the Brooklyn Nets, you really had no choice of fighting for national storylines because the Bucks are the reigning champs and they have Giannis in the MVP race. The Boston Celtics went on this fucking dazzling run in the second half of the year. And the Nets were rampant with dysfunction all while having Kevin Durant put up the numbers that he did. And of course, I'll throw the Sixers in there as well because Embiid being an MVP candidate. But the Miami Heat were so good for so long and just so like quietly dominant that they flew under the radar because despite being in Miami, the party capital of the United States and, you know, arguably the world, they weren't, their brand of basketball doesn't live up to the brand that this city has. They aren't this sensational team, at least not anymore. I mean, it was different when LeBron and D. Wade were there just because of the types of athletes that they were. But, you know, they are a very quiet, they are a very quiet super team. I mean, I think that's the best way to describe them. I mean, their best player is Jimmy Butler, who really, like, almost... When you see him play in the postseason and then see him play in the regular season, it looks almost as if he's coasting throughout the regular season because it gets to the playoffs, and Jimmy Butler just ascends to this level that only the other all-time greats in NBA history have ascended to. I mean, like, routinely averaging upwards of 25 points in playoff series... And still doing all of this while being a much improved playmaker, a, you know, really valuable shot creator to so many, to all of the teams that he's played on. And of course, his defensive prowess as well. And then you have Kyle Lowry, who's another guy who just goes out and wins basketball games. His addition to Miami, allowing them to leverage their youth, which allows them to play in transition, something I don't believe that they do quite often. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but if I remember correctly, the Miami Heat were not exactly um, marathon runners. No, 28th in pace. But that makes them so much deadlier in transition because you do have a lot of youth on the court. You do have a lot of length and you do have a lot of athleticism, but you can't exclusively play in transition, at least in the playoffs. And you need somebody like Kyle Lowry, a veteran who knows how to facilitate in the half court. And if the Miami Heat had any weaknesses going up against Philadelphia, it was the fact that they didn't have someone who can settle the team when they get rattled. Because I get that Jimmy Butler is a fantastic player, great playmaker and all that, but he's not the floor general that you need in the playoffs. He's not a Draymond Green. He's not Steph Curry. He's not Chris Paul. He's not none or he's not any of the elite point guards or point forwards that the NBA has. He's not like LeBron. He doesn't have that type of skill in his arsenal. And that's where Kyle Lowry comes in. And it was surprising to see Miami be so effective against Philly because we were not, I don't, I say we when it's really just me. I was not expecting Tyler Hero to come out this game and be, I got to fix my microphone. This shit is just fucking flopping all over the place. Jesus Christ. I was not expecting Tyler Hero, and it's now even worse than before. What the fuck, dude? I gotta, I gotta fix. It. It's fucking bothering me. 
Did I fix? All right, I'll 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 just deal with it, I suppose. But I was not expecting Tyler Hero to be the scorer and facilitator that he was in game one. I mean, 25 and seven for a guy who is young, but his brand, he's best known as a spark plug off the bench. A guy who's going to come off, be the sixth man, give you 16, 17, 18, 20 points, and just, you know, primarily work away from the ball, be a benefactor of Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry. But no, it was in fact Tyler Hero who took control of the offense and really helped Philly get out of their slumps. Because Philly, as I already mentioned, they did have some very, very solid defensive possessions. And they came with DeAndre Jordan off the court. Now, this is the first piece of news that we're going to get into. But after the game, Doc Rivers was asked about his commitment to DeAndre Jordan. And he basically said, we're going to play DJ whether you like it or not. In fact, his exact quote was... I can't find it. Huh? All right, well, that's embarrassing. Yeah, well, anyway, I paraphrased his original quote, but he said, okay, basically, we're going to play DeAndre Jordan whether you like it or not. And I understand where Doc is coming from because you don't have, you really, you actually do not have any other size right now outside of Paul Reed. But even Paul Reed fared more effectively than DeAndre Jordan was. If we go back to the box score, and I'm going to get into plus minus, I'm going to get into net rating. And before I do, I need all of the eye test Twitter people to understand this. The use of these metrics is not blasphemous as long as you understand or as long as you and you being me, as long as I realize that they don't exist in a vacuum and that they are not indicative of a player's performance because Tobias Harris and DeAndre Jordan had the same plus minus. Or, no, actually, Tobias Harris had a worse plus-minus than DeAndre Jordan. He and Tyrese Maxey were minus 25, while DeAndre Jordan was minus 22. However, what is the context required of this situation? It is the fact that Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey combined gave you 46 points. Tobias Harris had 27, very clearly Philly's best option um, Monday evening. And Maxey had 19 on 6 of 15. Now, another guy who we're going to talk about is James Harden, who was only minus 8, although Harden finished with 16 points on 5 of 13 shooting, 5 assists, and 5 turnovers. So, what is the takeaway from this? Is that when you're looking at plus minus and when you're looking at net rating, you can withstand a player having a a bad plus minus if they're doing other things especially because a player's plus minus is indicative of the lineup that he's playing with. If Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey are playing with DeAndre Jordan, Matisse Thibault, and fucking Danny Green, they are not going to fare as well on offense, and they are going to get absolutely brutalized on defense, therefore tanking the plus minus, the plus minuses of these players, which... Everybody understands. If you if you do, you know, have nerd tendencies, I guess, you recognize that there is no one statistic that encapsulates the dynamic of a basketball game. It is literally impossible. Um What am I looking at here? 
So DeAndre Jordan, perfect. Minus 22 on court, plus 8 off the court. Tobias Harris, also minus 25 on the court, plus 11 off. Now, of course, statistically, it tells you that you cannot play Tobias Harris. And everyone knows that that's just not going to happen. You can't not play Tobias Harris. He's your best player right now. But you can not play DeAndre Jordan. And you can substitute him for guys like George Niang, who played a considerable amount of minutes on Monday. Paul Reed played 13 minutes, was minus three, which, you know, not bad, not great. Did get, you know, finished with five fouls, which is also not that great, but gave you nine rebounds. I mean, just in terms of his youth and him being not as geriatric as DeAndre Jordan makes him a better option to contend with all of the athleticism that Miami is going to throw at you. Like, there are a few players in the NBA who can guard Bam Adebayo. And of the list of guys who can't, I'm going to put DeAndre Jordan at the very bottom of that list. It's Everyone knows that DeAndre Jordan is not fit to play serious minutes in the NBA anymore. It's not the case. It can't happen. And I know Doc Rivers is like, we're going to go with him whether you guys like it or not. I mean, that's cool and all, but at some point, you're going to have to adjust. And, you know, I don't really... I don't get down with Doc's wording of that because, you know, it just it makes it seem like he's being very ignorant to the to the fluidity of the situation that he's a part of, especially since you don't have Joel Embiid. Like you that should give you all the more reason to get a little wackier with your lineups, to get goofy. See if maybe you throw out a five man lineup or a small a small ball lineup and maybe it just confuses Miami. A little bit like how you confuse them with the zone in the second quarter. I mean, get a little wacky, get goofy, show the Heat offense looks that they're not accustomed to seeing. Like hit Tyler Hero with a box and one or something, or maybe do like a one two two press or you know a three two zone. I don't know. Probably don't do a three two zone. I think that'd be that'd be way too wacky. But I mean, Miami was the best shooting. Three point, the best three-point shooting team in the league this past season. They were first in percentage at about 38%, which is remarkable. And I think sixth in total makes. This is a team that absolutely crushes from the perimeter. And for a hot minute, Philly's zone was withstanding that barrage. And again, you have to take advantage of them not having Kyle Lowry. Now, I don't know when Kyle Lowry is going to be back. Um... It doesn't. He's day to day right now, dealing with the hamstring injury. So even more reason for us to be kind of um, unaware of when he's going to come back. But you have to take advantage of Miami's lone weakness right now, and that it's although they might not be a bad team in the half court, you can certainly exploit it and make it a little harder for them. Much like how the Heat are going to exploit you not having Joel Embiid, and how that effectively reduces your offense to. James Harden being the guy, I mean, the ultimate irony in this and the worst part about it is that it comes at the expense of Joel Embiid is that James Harden, it now has to be the guy on a playoff team, not even not just a playoff team, on a contender when he reportedly did not want to bear those duties in Brooklyn. So he is going to be remarkably uncomfortable 
in this situation, I feel like, because it wasn't his preference. It's not something he expected to do when he got to Philadelphia. And also because I don't think that James Harden is capable of being the guy anymore. I just think that he's beyond his prime. I don't know if he's still if he's still dealing with lingering hamstring issues, but he just does not look the same. I mean, the guy who would routinely tally 40-point triple-doubles, 30-point triple-doubles, just is now, in the span of two years, gone to someone who can't even crack 20 in a playoff game where he's taking third-most shots on his team. I mean, it's just, it's so weird. And it's not even the scoring being down that's, you know, odd. It's the fact that Harden wasn't even able to really make a lot of plays against Miami. I understand that Miami has an elite defense, but with Maxi, with Harden, and with Harris, you have enough firepower to steal at least one game. To steal at least one game, maybe even two by the time Joel Embiid comes back. Because once Embiid comes back, it ultimately doesn't matter how hurt he is or how much pain he's going through. He's still, he's still going to do his best to put up 20, 25, maybe even 30 if the um if the team necessitates it. But I think I don't think the Sixers make it out of this series. If they don't steal at least one of these games from Miami, um I think that Miami will have uh, they'll just have too much momentum going into the rest of the series. Now, I want to shift focus to who do I want to shift focus to? Uh, Boston and Milwaukee. This game was particularly intriguing because I did not expect it to go this way. I did not expect Milwaukee, down Chris Middleton, to pull off a 12-point victory against the Boston Celtics at home. At home. And on a day where Giannis wasn't even as dominant as we've seen him. He did have a 20-point triple-double, 24 points, 13 boards, 12 assists, but shot just 36% from the field. Drew Holiday had 25 as well. Did not pl- did not shoot particularly well. Boston's defense, as it was against Brooklyn in the first round, is absolutely stifling. However, the Milwaukee Bucks are now bringing something unique to the posi- to the table that Boston did not have to contend with in the first round, and that is a defense that is as good and possibly, arguably, even better than Boston's. In this game, Boston shot 33% from the floor, 28 of 84 overall. They shot 36% from three, which I think is going to dictate how this series goes. The team that, it's not going to come down to perimeter shooting, okay, because Boston... I mean, they hit 18 threes in 50 attempts. Like, that's great. I don't know how sustainable that is. I mean, it's only 36%, but I don't think their offense will be able to operate at peak capacity if they're forced into all these jumpers. Because you need to get Tatum in the post. You need to get Tatum working. Tatum's a three-level scorer. He has to score from all three levels, something that he really wasn't able to do the other day. I mean, 6 of 18 shooting 21 points. Like, you need Jalen Brown to be able to operate in the high post, mid-range, you know, get into the paint. He's a fucking, he's an athletic freak. You need to get him going downhill so he can, you know, flex his athleticism on his defenders. I mean, 
This was not something that Boston had to go up against in the first round. And I think that the team that controls the paint is the team that will ultimately come out victorious in this series. I don't have... Actually, I do have the... I'll, let's see, let's see. Um, Let me just go to my phone so I can get this fucking... So I can get these numbers. So Milwaukee had an edge of points in the paint 34 to 20 even with them shooting this poorly and i mean you know both teams were even on free throws like we can't say that one team benefited from the whistle and the other one didn't if anything i think that so far throughout a majority of the second round games neither team has benefited from any of the whistles i mean the only exception is draymond green getting ejected in game one of the warriors grizzlies game but we're not going to get into that quite yet the team that controls the paint in Boston-Milwaukee will be the team that wins this series. Because all of these easy buckets, well, I say easy, but all of the high percentage shot that these teams get are going to come at a premium. And you have to be able you have to be able to finish in the restricted area. The three-pointers are going to come, especially if both of these teams are going to kind of, you know, do everything in their power to limit points in the paint and to limit free throws. I mean, you're really going to see both of these defenses, both of these well-coached defenses emphasize the limitation of high percentage looks because you have Jason Tatum that you have to game plan for. One of the elite scorers in the NBA, you have Giannis that you have to game plan for, a guy who shoots like 75% inside of the restricted area. I mean, is essentially unguardable inside of 15 feet so you'll live with these guys taking threes because compare anywhere from like 35 to 39 percent to upwards of 60 both coaches are going to take those odds and ultimately it's going to come down to whichever team executes their half court offense most effectively and although Milwaukee does not have Chris Middleton it's for this reason or for that reason you know half court execution that I feel Milwaukee will come away with this victory. It won't be easy. I hope I I'm going to say this will be a 7-game series, although I said that Nets Celtics was going to be a 7-game series and I look like an idiot with that take, but what Milwaukee has that Boston does not is they have a legitimate star at point guard. Drew Holiday is a demon. He's a beast. He is a former All-Star. I mean, this dude just gave you 25 in game one. Like, not only is he someone who you can entrust to run your offense, make the proper read, look for Giannis, but also, like, while simultaneously looking for Giannis, being able to create for himself and maybe even find the open man if if Boston attacks his drive too heavily. And although Boston has Marcus Smart, who is a phenomenal player, he does not compare to Drew Holiday. He, he simply doesn't. Drew Holiday is one of the best at his position just in terms of everything. And and Milwaukee does have the best player in this series. And if Giannis, if Giannis is going to facilitate like this, give you 12 assists while only committing five turnovers, and I say only because, let's face it, he's not the, he's not the premier passing forward. That's the weakest part of his game. I feel like outside of three-point shooting, but he can improve his shot over time. He won't be able to improve drastically as a passer. 
It just doesn't happen. He's probably going to go the way of Kawhi Leonard, which is not a dig by any means necessary, but someone who may not have the court vision or the supreme basketball IQ of someone like LeBron or Chris Paul. They don't have that sixth sense that all the great passers have, but somebody who's who cherishes possessions and makes the right read. That's all you have to do to be a good passer is make the right read. It doesn't matter if you if it comes when you're looking two, three, four plays ahead, or if you're running or if you're running a pick and roll and you get trapped and the cutter is open for a lob. It's two points either way. And as long as you can make the right play, everything else becomes easier and easier. I mean, very clearly evidenced by him assisting on twelve of his team's 37 shots. I mean, ultimately, like, not a great ratio, but for a player, that's pretty damn impressive. Boston does not have that. They don't have somebody who can... They just don't have someone who can control the game like the Bucks do. I mean, that's not to say they don't have great playmakers because Jason Tatum has improved as a passer, and Marcus Smart is still, you know, a reliable option at point guard, there is also Al Horford, who at least as far as centers go, is a fantastic. Um, he's a fantastic passer as well, and just has a really keen understanding of how his offense or how the team's offense is supposed to operate. But in that regard, Milwaukee has the edge, and I think that their offense is only going to become deadlier when Middleton comes back. With all of that said. Again, I do not feel that this is going to be a runaway victory for Milwaukee by any means because Ime Udoka, although he didn't have to make many adjustments against Brooklyn in the first round, like this guy is is an insane coach, okay? He knows what the fuck he's doing. He's not a slouch. He's not, you know, he's not like how Mike Budenholzer was at the beginning of his playoff career, a guy who just... Didn't make any adjustments. I mean, Mike Budenholzer squashed that squashed that last year, obviously. But, you know, this is going to be a head coaching battle, as it should be. Because when your teams are this evenly matched, a lot of the times the only edge you have is with the, is with the coaching staff. Now, since we're on about coaching, let's go ahead and shift focus to the Western Conference. Uh, I'll talk about Phoenix and Dallas just because it's the more recent game. Ultimately, um, don't have many thoughts on this because it was a very odd game from start to finish. I went to bed at the beginning of the fourth quarter because I felt that there was no way that Dallas was going to make this game or make the game, you know, close again. I mean, they were back and forth between being down like, what was it, 15 or like 12 or something. And ultimately, they finished just seven points behind Phoenix, largely because of homeboy right here, Luka Doncic, having 45 on 15 of 30 shooting, 45 points on 50% shooting from the field, also added 12 rebounds and eight assists for good measure because why the fuck wouldn't he? He's Luka Doncic, he's a beast. But Phoenix was able to withstand it. Of course, having Chris Paul, Having Devin Booker helps tremendously, but they they had six guys in double figures. All five of their starters scored at least 10 points. And then you had Cam Johnson off the bench with 17. Campaign off the bench with nine. But I think what's going to make or break this series is how Dallas adapts their offense to Phoenix's 
defense. And then, of course, there was Jason Kidd taking a shot at Rudy Gobert, saying that now the team actually has to game plan against guys who can put the ball in the basket, i.e. DeAndre Ayton, who had 25, was the Suns' leading scorer. Just absolutely, absolutely insane development that I did not envision seeing. I love DeAndre Ayton. I think his game is conducive to Phoenix's title hopes, and his development as a scorer is really putting him in a valuable position, and that's why I'm probably, I'm as shocked as everyone that Phoenix did not choose to extend him. But that's another story. In the first round, the Jazz were not as elite of a defense as they've been in previous years, but even so, they fought a great battle against Dallas, even though they wound up getting dispatched. Ultimately, it was too much for them to bear between Jalen Brunson and Luka Doncic, but sometimes guys just get buckets, and there's nothing you can do about it. The mark of a great team, as Phoenix demonstrated yesterday, although at, although statistically their defense was not that impressive, I mean, gave up 114 on 47% shooting, they did all that they could to limit production from guys not named Luka Doncic. Okay, you had Dorian Finney-Smith with 15. You had Jalen Brunson with only 13. That's that is huge. I think going forward, Phoenix is looking at it like, okay, Doncic, let him average 45 for the series, and then let DFS get 15. Maxi Kleba had 19 as well, five of eight from three. These guys are depend. These guys are beholden to Luka Doncic for them to score points. DFS and Maxi Kleba are significantly better when Luka Doncic is putting them in positions to make open shots, which is all, which is really how Dallas's offense operates. It's a one-man show, and Luka dominates it as well as everybody else. They didn't get great production from Reggie Bullock, who only shot two of seven from three, and Dwight Powell was effectively a non-factor. But... The two key guys in this series for Dallas would be Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie. Jalen Brunson cannot go six for six for sixteen. He can't. After showing us what his ceiling is, or close to what his ceiling is, in the first round, he's got to be better. He has to be just more. I guess has to be smarter against this defense in particular because the Suns' defense is significantly better than Utah's and also DeAndre Ayton is capable of guarding smaller guys whereas Rudy Gobert is I don't want to say Rudy Gobert is a shitty perimeter defender but I just feel that DeAndre Ayton does have a little bit more margin for error he doesn't look as clunky on the perimeter maybe that's just me maybe that's just me being a hater but whenever I watch Gobert defend on the perimeter he looks lost like he's too long and too big to defend outside of 15 feet, whereas DeAndre Ayton, although he's got great size, he just looks more fluid in his movements. Obviously, neither are elite perimeter defenders for their size. Don't get it twisted. They're much better served in the perimeter. But, you know, there are going to be instances when DeAndre Ayton is pulled out to the uh, to the perimeter. Actually, I want to see... I want to pull up the matchup data... For these games, because I think, I think it's interesting. Fuck it up. Okay, where are we? 
box score, matchups. Okay, so we find Jalen Brunson right here. Who spent the most time guarding Jalen Brunson? In total, it was Devin Booker. Okay, he spent four and a half minutes guarding Jalen Brunson, but with Booker on him, Jalen Brunson only attempted four shots. And although he was two of four on those shots, it was I don't I don't know if Dallas tries to attack Devin Booker more with this information because we know that Booker is not a premier defender, but that almost doesn't matter when the defense behind him is the Phoenix Suns defense because DeAndre Ayton held Jalen Brunson to 0 of 2 shooting. And of course, these numbers are not a huge sample size by any means, but Phoenix does have the talent to keep Jalen Brunson from making a from making a sizable impact. And if that's the case, the next most important guy in this series becomes Spencer Dinwiddie. Spencer Dinwiddie was acquired by Dallas because of his ability to get downhill, to put pressure on the defense, and to create points. That's what he did with the Brooklyn Nets very successfully. Although since leaving Brooklyn, he has kind of struggled more so with Washington. I mean, we're looking at the numbers here, 30, like 38% shooting with Washington to begin the season did get a little bit better with the Mavericks throughout the regular season was shooting almost 50% from the field and 40% from three. But so far in the postseason, Spence has just not had it. He's in a tremendous slump shooting Barely above 36% from the field and just under 32% from three. His acquisition was crucial for Dallas because it gave Luka a safety net and it, well, a second safety net in addition to Jalen Brunson. And by doing that, you just make the team more difficult to guard. And it's not it's not sustainable for Dallas to have these games where Spencer Dinwiddie shoots 3 of 8. I mean, Dinwiddie and Brunson combined 9 of 24. Dallas is not going to win games that way. The only reason this wasn't a blowout was because of Luka. So now it falls on Jason Kidd to try to figure out how to find any hole in this Suns defense. And of course, it is worth noting that Devin Booker did not shoot particularly well from the field this game either. He's at just he was at seven of twenty. I mean, game ones are so difficult because you really it's so it's just hard to judge because it's one game of at least four. And so much can happen in those four games. Like Dallas could realistically, with just how the NBA playoffs are, they can rattle off four straight wins and bounce the Suns in five games after dropping the first. Is that likely? I don't think so. I think that Phoenix has a much easier matchup than anybody else in the playoffs just because the theory of shutting down Dallas is easier than the theory of shutting down Boston or Milwaukee or um, Golden State because you can either try to take Luka out of the equation, which is unlikely, so you're not going to do that. So then you're just going to smother all of his other options. And you will live with Luka creating 65, 70 points because you can easily put up 100, especially if your starting five is going to 
play how they did the other day. So we're going to now move on to the final series. It is, or the only series I haven't talked about, it is Golden State Memphis, which is already shaping up to be one of the most electrifying series, I guess would be the most appropriate word. Sunday was a very, very interesting game because it was back and forth, literally came down to the final minute. Um, Jordan Poole saved the asses of Klay Thompson and Steph Curry, neither of whom shot very well. Klay Thompson also missed two free throws down the stretch, which is absolutely great for the Warriors going forward. But fortunately, JP had 31 and 9 and really just gave the Warriors that needed boost to overcome in a Grizzlies onslaught that was, I don't want to say unforeseen, but if you went into this game thinking that Triple J was going to shoot 6 of 9 from 3 and finish with 33, then I think that you would just be lying and you're just a homer at that point, which is fine. But Brendan Clark gave them incredible minutes. Dylan Brooks also looked like shit, just straight up. Did not play well. 3-13, had five fouls, nearly fouled out of the game on what was, I think it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a charge on Steph Curry that would have been Brooks's sixth foul, but instead was Steph's fifth. Regardless, nothing more came of that. And beyond basketball, what was most interesting about this game was Draymond Green getting ejected on a flagrant two when he smacked Brandon Clark in the face when Clark was going up for a dunk and then grabbed onto his jersey and seemingly pulled him down. I'm not going to say that Draymond intentionally did that. I'm actually going to try to pull up the video. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Okay. Clark inside is fouled. So Clark goes up for this shot, gets fouled, you know, whatever. Picks it back up. Clark inside is fouled. And they're going to look at that one here. All flagrant fouls. The final decision He's goes out. Raymond Green running around the floor. It, it appears they haven't announced it yet. James Williams told them that. And Steve Kerr's reaction. Yep, he's going back to the locker room. Yeah. Wow. So regardless of what folks on Twitter were saying, and regardless of really just all, I guess, um, opinions surrounding the subject, because I'm indifferent to this, I think that Draymond Green has definitely had some unsavory moments throughout his basketball career. Um, I don't think he's a dirty player. I just think that sometimes he doesn't make the smartest decisions, okay? You know, kicking guys in the nuts, albeit intentionally. I don't know many people who have their legs flail on certain possessions, when they're jumping, but that's neither here nor there. On this play, though, what was particularly interesting was why you already hit Brandon Clark in the face, which I don't think on its own constitutes a flagrant foul because the fact of the matter is 
if you're a big guy and you're playing around the basket, you're going to get hit in the face sometimes. It just happens. I'm a short guy, and I get hit in the face when I'm playing underneath the basket. It's just how it is. And regardless, you're at least making a play on the ball at that point. But Draymond Green grabs the jersey of Brandon Clark. Why? 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 If you knew that you had already fouled him, and I mean the refs are obviously going to call that, why are you then trying to move your hand anywhere near Brandon Clark? That's the part that I don't get from a player perspective. Like, you shouldn't even be putting yourself in that position, especially since you think that the NBA has a target on your back and how they're almost out to get you because of other, you know, other... I don't even, I gotta be very careful about how I choose my words. So like other instances that you've been involved in. Like you just have to be more careful. Because again, also, not even again, also, players know that flagrant fouls are becoming, I don't wanna say more and more common, but they, the interpretation is getting wider because it's not just excessive contact but excessive and unnecessary the slap to the face i could see it being excessive i wouldn't i'm not getting too bent up out of that because that i don't believe constitutes the flagrant too but the excessive part is grabbing the jersey of brandon clark like i that just seems silly to me it's it's just silly it's just silly man and then he later Jack's impression. He later went on to um, inside the NBA and said some shit that he like didn't actually pull the jersey of what happened. No, I didn't pull his shirt down. I tried to stop him from getting an one, and which is why I tried. Listen, you know me. I'm not stopping anybody from falling if I'm trying to foul you. I tried to Dre, hold the guy up so he, he didn't pull his shirt. You didn't pull his jersey. Oh, no, he did. Look, look well, at his feet. You know, the, you know the law of gravity. If he tries to jump up this way and my hand is caught in his shirt this way. It's automatically going to, like, come down the opposite way. But I didn't yank his jersey. And in order to get suspended, it has to be excessive. I didn't do this. He's just jumping, and my hand is up. It's all good, though. Well, I Draymond Green, noted physicist. I mean, he's he's not wrong. Like, obviously, that is how gravity works. Or, you know, fucking some, some Newtonian physics bullshit, whatever. I failed physics. That's neither here nor there. But I don't think... That Brandon Clark, who's like 250 pounds, is being brought to the ground off of Draymond Green using one hand that hooks onto his jersey. I don't see that happening. I don't. Th I don't think that's a thing. Like again, maybe that's like. Look at that one here. All flagrant fouls. The final decision goes. Like, there's very clearly a yank there. The jersey gets pulled off of Brandon Clark's chest. There was some sort of additional force applied to it. That That's the take. I, I don't want to hear Draymond Green say that I didn't pull his jersey because he clearly did. That is not up for debate. What's up for debate is should he have been ejected because of that? I can't say. I can't say. I don't think I would have ejected him. But then again, I'm not in. I don't believe that fans and analysts interpret the same, interpret these rules the same way that the referees do. 
it's uh, there's a disconnect there's a fundamental disconnect between how officials see basketball and how fans and commentators and media people see basketball and of course players as well i'm again not surprised that you know the warriors don't think he should have been ejected obviously you're not going to fucking say that like even if Draymond Green smacked Brandon Clark across the face Steve Kerr would be like nah he didn't deserve it it was accidental of course that's a little different but ultimately there was a little extra put onto that did it necessitate an ejection I don't think so and I think that's the part that gets people all bent out of shape it's not the action itself it's the outcome of that action and ultimately it didn't impact the Warriors that sizably because they went on to win the game and let's face it, Draymond Green was not going to help them with their offensive issues. Like, straight up. That's not what he's there for. Would he have maybe helped the defense a little bit? I believe so. But it just gets to a point where you need guys to you need guys to make plays down the stretches of games. JP did it. Jaron Jackson Jr. did it. John Morant did it. Like, that's going to be the whole mark of this series going forward. And... Uh, I don't think anyone is betting on Memphis to beat Golden State in this series. I mean, I know I'm not. I'm definitely not because I think outside of I think that outside of Golden State or outside of Phoenix, pardon me, Golden State is the most likely title contender going or title contender in the Western Conference. It those are the two best teams. I know that Memphis statistically is better and they do have home court advantage, but it's the fucking Golden State Warriors you're going up against. You're going up against a healthy Warriors team who not only has Steph, Clay, and Draymond, but also now Jordan Poole, who's capable of giving you 20, 25, 30. It's just going to be a lot for Memphis to overcome. And another thing that I was talking about when I was, um, when I was analyzing Milwaukee and Boston is that Golden State, much like Milwaukee, has the superior ability in the half court. They are a better half court team than Memphis is. They also have all that experience, all the intangibles, but them being able to execute not in transition is going to ultimately make or break this series. I don't think that Memphis is up to par. I don't think that Memphis is even close to them in that regard. And I don't care what the numbers say. Everything is... Everything is different in the playoffs. It's not a sizable difference, but even the most marginal difference in the postseason is amplified just by way of it being the postseason. I think that Golden State advances in probably like six games or so, but it can go either way. All four of these series can go either way. There is no clear-cut winner in any of them. All of these teams, all eight of these teams, I think it's eight, yeah, all eight of these teams are evenly matched, both in terms of talent, in terms of coaching. Like, there are a lot of great coaches still left in the postseason, including Taylor Jenkins, Steve Kerr, Eric Spolstra. I mean, I, I want to say Doc Rivers, but I think Doc Rivers is the weakest of the bunch right now Him between him and Jason Kidd. But ultimately, there there really is no team that should be losing in... Fewer than six games. The only exception to that is Philadelphia. And of course, that comes with a tremendous caveat in Joel Embiid potentially not being healthy for most of the series. Now, I'm sure you guys have noticed that there was a report that came out the other day 
that mentioned, or I say report, I use the term report very uh, loosely because I don't believe this to be a report at all. Uh, it's from Sean O'Connell. Sean O'Connell, just going off of his Twitter bio, he is a serious XM host, PFL, play-by-play announcer, washed-up fighter, aspiring author, traveler, wannabe, renaissance man. Um, of course, when it comes to all of these reports, there are very few reliable sources outside of Woj, Shams, Chris Haynes, several beat reporters from the teams, you know, guys who spend a significant amount, guys and, gal, guys and gals, I should say, who spend a significant amount of time with a particular team. I don't believe Sean O'Connell to be this guy. And he tweets, you know, he's, he's very self-aware in this report. I know I'm not usually Utah Jazz breaking news guy, but a source close to the situation has informed me that Rudy Gobert is at a, quote, him or me point with Donovan Mitchell and will demand that one of them be traded in the next few days. Definite doesn't feel like they will win a championship together. He then follows this with a second tweet, doubling down on it. Rudy feels that his own numbers are consistent or getting better, while Don is defensive liability and is falling off in terms of explosiveness. Gobert also aware of at least one Western Conference power that would be willing to pay handsomely for his abilities, in parentheses, NBA teams never tamper. I don't know if Mr. O'Connell is trying to join the Onion and be their you know, main sports guy, because I don't believe this because it doesn't make any sense. Why the fuck would Rudy Gobert go to the Utah Jazz and be like, it's either me or Donovan Mitchell? Everyone knows who it would be in that point. That's me going to Zendaya and being like, it's either me or Tom Holland. Bro, the Utah Jazz would not pick Rudy Gobert over Donovan Mitchell. Straight up. Straight up, you have a $200 million center who at certain points in the playoffs looks like a li- liability, is sometimes unplayable in the fourth quarter of games. What Rudy Gobert does have going for him, though, is his exceptional prowess on defense. However, the Utah Jazz are not, they are not not going to win a championship because of just Rudy Gobert's mere existence, him being a sentient being on the Utah Jazz is not limiting their championship capacity. It's the role in which he occupies as the number two guy on this team. You can't have a defensive-minded guy who gives you minimal production on offense be your number two your your number two franchise player. It doesn't happen. The NBA is still at least a two-star sport. It's still... How do I say this? NBA teams still have to form super teams, whether it be with two stars or three. Okay? You cannot have a single star team win a championship. It's not going to happen. For the next couple of years, that's not going to be the case. All of the contenders... Just look at all of the contending teams. We'll look at Golden State, Steph, and Clay. Those are their two stars. You look at Phoenix, Devin Booker, Chris Paul. You look at Milwaukee, Giannis, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday. Even Boston with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown is a guy who's giving you 20 a night on most most evenings. He's giving you 20. The Utah Jazz are fundamentally not constructed to win titles in this NBA. Rudy Gobert is kind of correct in saying that Donovan Mitchell is a liability. I would not say that Mitchell is a liability 
on defense? Is he a premier defender? No, he's not the premier defender that I thought he was going to be coming out of Louisville. He's also way better on offense than I thought he would be coming out of Louisville. He's on the smaller side. He's listed at 6'1", might be closer to 6'2", but he has exceptional length and is an explosive athlete, which can take you which can take you a decent way on defense in the NBA. But he's also like an all-NBA caliber player as well. And Rudy Gobert is, but for different reasons, because Donovan Mitchell is still only getting better. He had the best season of his career this past year. After looking like after looking like Kemba Walker almost, where these first couple of seasons there was only like marginal increase. I mean over the last two years, he's taking it he's taken him he's taken his game to another level. Maybe not necessarily statistically, but every year his game just looks more and more polished, whether it be whether it be creating shots for himself, whether it be um, his shooting from the perimeter, whether it be his playmaking. Donovan Mitchell is constantly expanding his game to just take the Utah Jazz farther and farther. And all while that's happening, Rudy Gobert has yet to develop one go-to move in the post. This is why I think this story is bullshit because I, I can't even call it a story. This is why I think this report is bullshit because Rudy Gobert knows where his bread is buttered. He got nine figures. He got multiple hundreds of millions of dollars to play defense for the Utah Jazz. He knows that he's an elite defender. He knows he's arguably the best defensive player of his generation. He knows that. And he knows that he doesn't give anything on offense that is not contingent upon someone else supplying it to him. Like even DeAndre Ayton has come a long way as a post scorer since coming into the league. Rudy Gobert has not. And if he were, if he were to become a reliable option in the post, that opens up so much more for Utah because they have Boyan Bogdanovich. They have Jordan Clarkson. They had Joe Ingles. They have playmakers and they have shooters on the perimeter. But you're effectively losing Rudy Gobert every time down on offense if he's reliant on Mitchell giving him a lob around the basket or you know guys missing shots close and him cleaning up the offensive rebounds if the Jazz were able to dunk the ball in to Rudy Gobert five or six times a game and he were able to give them 10-12 points in the post do you know how how radically different Utah would be if that were the case oh motherfucker god damn it let's put let's look at Rudy's numbers Rudy Gobert, who averaged 15, who's averaged 15 points a game essentially for the last four seasons while maintaining these incredibly high shooting percentages because so many of his shots are either assisted or coming off of um, offensive rebounds. I want to find, I want to find his assisted shot percentage. 72.4% of his shots, of his made shots are assisted. That is a preposterous amount for your number two guy. Even if he's giving you 10 more points in the paint or 10 more points in the post, you're looking at a 
two-way center who is dominant on defense while also giving you 18 to 20 points on offense. And this isn't exactly foreign for a lot of the contending teams. I mean, look at Giannis. Obviously, Giannis and Gobert are in two totally different... They could not be more different from, from one another. But Giannis is at least showing us that you can be a dominant defensive player while putting up a considerable amount of production offensively. I mean, Kawhi Leonard, obviously, perimeter, different story. LeBron, different story. But there have been instances of guys being electrifying on both ends of the floor, and that has produced incredible results for their team. It just it doesn't make sense for this report to come out. And even Gobert was like, every day it's a new rumor. And typically, I don't like... like I hate when... I don't want to say I hate, but, you know, athletes get sassy when they hear reports and then these reports come out being true. Like Debo Samuel did this. You know, there were reports of him wanting to be traded from the 49ers and then he came out with some snarky tweet and then lo and behold, he comes out that he wants to be traded from the 49ers. So I get it's all about controlling the narrative, but like this is just so this is just so off base. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for this to even be a discussion because Gobert would get laughed out of the meeting by everybody, by Quinn Snyder, by ownership, by the general manager, by Donovan Mitchell, because he knows that this isn't even a, he knows that this isn't ever going to be a discussion. He'll Rudy Gobert will be the first to be dealt when Utah decides to blow it up. And the only difference is if Donovan Mitchell requests a trade before he does. That would be the only factor that differentiates these two. Um, What's next? Okay, so I was going to talk about Mark Jackson in Sacramento, but I don't want to because I don't give a fuck. Why would I care about the Kings? Yeah, Instead, talk about Gian- we're going to talk about Giannis and LeBron because we love Giannis and we love LeBron. So this is Brian Windhorst on Get Up saying, quote, Giannis as a defender is probably at a higher level than LeBron ever even was, even ever was, pardon me. Let's get it. Let's get into this. Giannis, um, you were on yesterday when Big Perk came on here, and he made, I think, a pretty big statement. He said, as he watches Giannis now, he's getting LeBron in Cleveland vibes, which is to say that the East is going to run through that guy for a decade. I mean, LeBron ruined a lot of people's, a lot of people's careers for a decade by owning the East. Are we ready to say Giannis is reaching that level right now? Absolutely. I had flashbacks sitting in the TD Garden on a Sunday afternoon playoff game, watching a really great Celtics team have trouble with a transcendent player who didn't even play his best game, yet still made all of his teammates better in one. You know, LeBron repeatedly went up into the Celtics against great teams. Sometimes he won and sometimes he lost. But he always kept his team in the game because of his multi-talented ability. That is where Giannis is. And Giannis as a defender is probably at a higher level than LeBron even ever was. And then, Wendy, I want to... <laughs> One thing I have to add is that I hope that we as a society and as a as a basketball community don't ever, <laughs> don't ever treat Jason Tatum like how <laughs> we treat Paul Pierce. Because... Guys, we all know that Giannis, whether we want to admit it or not, if Giannis continues at this trajectory, he's going to be the greatest NBA player of all time. I don't know if we're ready to acknowledge this, but we have a multiple-time MVP who's already won 
a world title and is pretty far and away, not far and away, but is, you know, the best player in the league at this point. Like, And he's 26. That is preposterous. And there's going to be no one who dismisses the idea that the Eastern Conference now belongs to Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's just how it is. Much like LeBron, when not even when he was just in Cleveland, but for his whole career before he went out west, before he went and joined the Lakers, like he owned the Eastern Conference, both in Cleveland, well, more towards, you know, the end of his career, and then in Miami, and then back in Cleveland again. Like every year LeBron was in the finals. It's weird. It's still weird. Not even not even LeBron not being in the finals, but not seeing LeBron in the playoffs is still surreal for so many basketball fans. And we are at this point with Giannis, where Giannis, for as long as he stays in Milwaukee, they will be the premier team in the conference. Now, it was the end of this bit where Wendy says Giannis as a defender is probably a hot, is probably better than LeBron ever was. I don't really think that this is a hot take because LeBron, although when he was in Miami, he was a he was a force to be reckoned with on defense. Statistically, Giannis is a better defender. He just he gets more he accumulates more counting stats. He's a better shot blocker. He's long. He's rangy. He gets a lot of steals. I mean, analytically, like I think it, it probably favors um, it probably favors LeBron over Giannis as well. Um, like let's see. I don't think LeBron ever had a season where he averaged more than one block per game. He had two. Okay, pardon me. He had two. Even wait, this year too, he averaged one block a game. That's kind of crazy. This is two times back in 2008 and 2009 where LeBron averaged more than one block per game. Giannis has done it every year since he's been in the league, I think. Every year except for his rookie year, he's averaged more than one block per game. Like, also, every year outside of his first two years, averaged more than one steal per game. I mean, not even that, but like just beyond the counting numbers, just in terms of his his physical attributes, Giannis can do more defensively than LeBron can. Okay, Giannis can legitimately guard five players. He can legitimately guard every position on the perimeter. He's big enough to play against both back-to-the-basket centers and stretch fives. He can obviously guard every forward in the league, and he's athletic enough to... He's athletic, he's also long enough to switch onto guards on the perimeter. It's very difficult for anyone to get past the almost immovable object that is Giannis because he's big he's strong he's athletic he's also fucking seven feet tall with like a seven five wingspan it's just LeBron never had that LeBron was blessed with a lot of you know great physical attributes but unfortunately he was a little too small especially back like when he was in his prime before this shift towards you know small ball fives and stretch fives if that were the case uh, LeBron I think would have much more versatility and much more utility on the defensive end because he's just as athletic as Giannis was. It was just he was giving up a little too much size and you also wouldn't risk LeBron guarding the center and then having your center go and guard um, whoever, we know, whoever the small forward or the shooting guard was. It's just it was not something that his coaches would be willing to do. Um, 
Yeah, I think that about I think that about covers it. I mean, we love Giannis. We we absolutely love Giannis in this in this household. I don't care what anybody says. I think Giannis is fantastic for basketball. I think he's just he's fantastic overall. Now, we got to talk about a little bit of societal stuff. We got to talk about a little bit of what's going on in the United States right now. And this ha- this news broke late Monday night. It happened during the Suns Mavericks game, and it actually occupied quite a quite a lot of my attention. And it was a draft from Justice Samuel Alito, basically stating that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade in the coming months. This draft was obtained by Politico and they were the ones that broke the story. So we're just going to we're just going to go ahead and get right into it and I'll be giving my my thoughts on this throughout the course of the article. I will just say if you're a pro-life weirdo, you might want to turn it off now because it's um it's going to get intense in here. And I it's just like it's so fucking mind-boggling to me that in the year 2020 when so many Western countries, think of France, Germany, the UK, Ireland, Scandinavia, all of these countries are becoming more and more progressive. And I say, I highlight Western countries in particular because religiously, we align more with other Christian countries than we do Islam, Islamic countries. It's just how it is. Like, ultimately, the cultural divides between the East and the West comes down to mostly religion and there are other things of course but there is a lot of division between christianity and islam of course and their followers but it's just easier to compare the united states to other western countries because our cultures are so similar and the fact that i think the united states is now the first industrialized western catholic country to be on the way to not protect abortion at the government level is just so it's so sad it really is it's like it's it's heartbreaking it's sad it's disgusting it's uh, it's deplorable of course that people that republicans in particular want this to happen they're absolutely fucking sick freaks but uh, let's let's go ahead and get into this this article was written by josh gerstein and alexander ward The Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, according to an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, circulated inside the court and obtained by Politico. The draft opinion is a full-throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision, which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights and a subsequent 1992 decision, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that largely maintained the right. Quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Alito writes, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. He writes in this document labeled as the opinion of the court. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. I will leave a link. Actually, I don't even think I'm going to leave a link to this in the description. Um, because I think everyone has read this article by now. There's also a draft. There's also the draft of this, and I'm not gonna fucking read it because why? Well, I, I don't want to throw up. That's why I really don't want to throw up. But just remember that the whole political system, the whole political framework that the United States sits on, 
is fundamentally flawed in every regard from the constitution to the senate to the house to the supreme court to the executive branch itself it's all flawed and this is it's for that reason why there is never any meaningful legislation that happens that you know benefits a large amount of people it it seldom happens because at the time of this recording in 2022 the united states despite having a democratic president and despite having multiple democratic presidents throughout the course of its history uh, it's still fundamentally a right-wing country because the only legislation that happens is ultimately or the legislation that happens or doesn't happen is ultimately dictated by the republican party i mean this is Roe, this strike down the overturn of roe v wade is probably the most um the largest legislative it's not even legislative but the largest political ruling that i've seen in my lifetime good or bad of course i'm young being only 25 i haven't really lived that long especially compared to other people in politics and compared to the fucking ghouls that are sitting on the supreme court bench um it's probably it's probably between that and the patriot act but never in my lifetime has you know good legislation happened or like meaningful legislation that alters all of the or that changes all of these systemic injustices that have occurred throughout the history of america of course i'm not saying that you know stuff like that has never happened there was the civil rights act that happened in i think 1968 i believe fdr with the new deal changed a lot of changed a lot of people's lives at the time but it just like it it ultimately doesn't happen because as bad as the republican party is and i'll rip into them in a little bit the democratic party the establishment democratic party does not do anything to combat this they just they don't because it's all they're all essentially the same party moderate democrats or centrist democrats are republicans because centrism in a right-wing country makes you a right-winger they're also all bought and owned by the same corporations whether it's the pharmaceutical industry whether it's the fossil fuel industry whether it's the defense industry they're all bought and paid for and it's in their best interest to not legislate because why would they like we are i we are an oligarchy who is run by a select few representatives who are ultimately controlled by these huge multinational corporations and that's why legislation doesn't happen anyway let's get on with it deliberations on controversial cases have in the past been fluid justices can and sometimes do change their votes as draft opinions circulate and major decisions can be subject to multiple drafts and vote trading sometimes until just days before a decision is unveiled the court's holding will not be final until it's published likely in the next two months the immediate impact of the ruling as drafted in february would be to end a half century guarantee of federal constitutional protection of abortion rights and allow each state to decide whether to restrict or ban abortion it's unclear if there have been subsequent changes to the draft no draft decision in the modern history of the court has been disclosed publicly while the case was still pending the unprecedented revelation is bound to intensify the debate over what was already the most controversial case on the docket this term there has been a collective uproar among 
conservatives among right-wing media where they're just so fucking ghoulish that they're not even celebrating their quote-unquote victory like this is a victory for them and all they can choose to fixate on is the fact that this decision was leaked and how the sanctity of the supreme court is no longer is no longer being upheld because there was a leaker and now there's a, a federal investigation being prompted on someone for, on the individual who leaked this document like that's all bullshit it's all bullshit the supreme court as much as they try to remain apolitical, it is a political institution. Why do you think that every time there's a new appointee, whoever is in power at the time, whether it be Democrat or Republican, they try to sh they try to shoehorn that pick in as quickly as possible because they know they know that it doesn't matter what the legislative branch says or what the executive branch says. The Supreme Court has the power to dictate legislation, and that's why. That's why the presidents have used it as a third political arm. When they can't get stuff done in the Senate or in the House, they go to the Supreme Court. I mean, no senators, no representatives have been able to undo Roe v. Wade at the federal level. It's happened at the state level with, you know, Florida, uh, Texas doing their own state laws to whether it's criminalize abortion or ban abortion after 15 weeks or whatever. It's... It's another political institution. And because of that, because they're upholding this fucking piece of paper that's 250 years old, it's bullshit. It's absolutely bullshit. There is no sanctity of the Supreme Court. It's just another piece of the establishment that is ultimately used to dictate policy. They say they're apolitical. They say that they don't let their beliefs coincide with their views on this. And yet, magically, it comes out that although these folks are apolitical, the majority, the Republican supermajority in the court is very strangely deciding that Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional. Like, how fucking insane is that? Um... So in the draft, Justice Alito says, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has, has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national sentiment on the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division, except they haven't. Who, where are the damaging consequences? I would love to know. I would love to know what these damaging consequences are. That you're talking about and of course christian conservatives social conservatives they're gonna be like oh well you're killing babies and it's like okay you're just wrong again because the abortion issue has never been about the babies it's never been about protecting the life of an unborn child or a newborn child and i say newborn because they always try to bring late-term abortions into this debate despite the fact that less than one percent of all abortions are performed after 21 weeks that's something it's something very interesting i know very interesting that you never hear about that when 90 i think it's like 90 or this was in 2019 or 2020 that nine about 90 percent of all abortions took place within 13 weeks that's not a baby at that point you're conflating 
an actual human child to a zygote, an embryo, a fertilized egg. And that is not an apt comparison because if you were to remove that thing from the body, it would die. There's no, there's no reason for this. And if I love this, I love this part of the debate because we're always talking about being pro-life when in reality, if you're pro-life, you're just pro-birth because these same people who claim that, you know, we're killing babies by having abortions, the same people that claim that, you know, however many millions, tens of millions have kids have died because of this ruling. These are the same people that allow 20% of children in the United States to go hungry. These are the same people who don't want to afford health care to children because they refuse to buy into a single-payer system, which guarantees health care as a human right. These are the same people who want to privatize education, who want to keep education co co costs exorbitant. These are the same people who are against free lunch in school. Like, it's not an issue of protecting children it's an issue of control because these fucking spineless gargoyles live such sad and depressing lives and their wives are constantly cheating on them and their children despise them because of their fucking bullshit worldview they just want control that's what it's always been about it's never been about children it's been about controlling the reproductive components of women across the country. Um, a person familiar with the court's deliberation said that four of the other uh, Republican appointed justices, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett have voted with Alito in the conference held among the justices after hearing or oral arguments in December, and that lineup remains unchanged as of this week. The three Democrat appointed justices, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, are working on one or more dissents according to the person how chief justice john roberts will ultimately vote and whether he will join in the written opinion or draft his own is unclear the document labeled as labeled as a first draft of the majority opinion includes a notion that it was circulated among the justices on february 10th if the alito draft is adopted it would rule in favor of mississippi in the closely watched case over the state's attempt to ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy Roberts confirmed the authenticity of the draft opinion and said he was ordering an investigation into this disclosure. Quote, to the extent this betrayal of the con... I really don't give a fuck about his quote, honestly. He's a fucking scumbag. Um, Politico received a copy of the draft from a person familiar with the uh, proceedings. Yada yada, 98 pages. Understanding long-standing court prestige... Uh... Yeah, this goes this goes on and on and it's just it's it's so difficult to tackle a topic like this because it has so many layers and none of them are good by the way there is nothing good about this decision and all part i say all parties are wrong in this decision but only in the sense that the democrats are only wrong in this case by not choosing to legislate this earlier i mean it's been ongoing for 50 years and none of the democratic presidents have ever attempted to codify this barack obama said he would he never did joe biden 
had the chance. And he I'm sure he knew that when Trump appointed however many Supreme Court justices that this was the first takedown that they were going to try to do. And he did nothing to, you know, push it to the Senate. And of course, that the fact that the filibuster still exists effectively would neutralize that attempt to legislate it. But at least try, at least try. And beyond that, that is where the Democrats no longer take responsibility because this is simply the, another case of Republicans bitching, screeching, and moaning about being the oppressed party and then getting it exactly how they want it. This is what they want. A small minority of people in power. It's literally five people that are changing this, by the way. Five. Five people are overturning a super precedent, one that was essentially viewed as law. Five justices are overturning something that is immensely popular amongst the citizens of the United States. No poll shows that illegal abortion is um, approved by the majority of Americans. In fact, it varies from 20 to 40 percent. So anywhere from 80 to 60 to 80 percent of the country feels that abortion should be legal in some capacity and this go this it further demonstrates that the united states has no interest in being a progressive country um, we will never be a progressive country under this system this two-party system that places too much power into the hands of a select few groups of people because the whole idea about this, and I'll, I'm going to try to f figure out a way to collect my thoughts here, but judges on the Supreme Court, and I'm sure judges to, you know, other judges to a certain degree, but more so on the Supreme Court because they're dealing with legislation, they're supposed to analyze these cases, these decisions from the perspective of how they work with the Constitution, whether it's unconstitutional or constitutional. The issue, as I already brought up, was the fact that the Constitution is a piece of paper written 250 years ago by slave owners. And it has fundamentally not changed since that time. There have been amendments that have been made but it is notoriously extremely difficult to amend the Constitution. And that was done purposely. That was done purposely. James Madison, one, one of the founding fathers, I don't know if he directly wrote this into the Constitution, but his goal was to make sure that the Constitution only applied to the wealthy part of the country. When he was writing the Constitution with all of the other fucking dickheads in that room wearing their stupid wigs and their ugly pants and all that. They were not legislating it for the people, even though it says we the people. They're talking about the wealthy people because although America has a history of dealing injustices upon black people, brown people, women, um, the gay community, the native community, above all else, if you're poor, you're going to get shafted. By the United States. Even if you're white, if you're a poor white person in America, you too are facing inequality. It's just a different type of inequality. I mean, just look at 
all I don't want to say all the states, but look at portions of states in the deep south. I mean, West Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi. I mean, Theo Vaughn, actually, let's I want to I want to pull this up. I know I'm getting off track here, but Theo Vaughn had a really poignant joke on white privilege. Where is it? I love this joke. I love so, this bit. I grew up in my neighborhood. We didn't have a lot of diversity in my neighborhood. Diversity is always people's talking about it. And we didn't have it. You know, my neighborhood was poor black, poor white. That was our neighborhood, you know? So I didn't feel any white privilege. I know some people had it, man, you know? I knew some motherfuckers with sweaters. <laughs> but I was two tank tops in the winter, okay? And I just didn't feel it, you know? I wish I'd have had some white privilege, dude. Sign me up. But I didn't have it, man. It was just poor black kids, poor white kids, man. And my poor black friends would always be like, man, look what you did to us. And I'm like, dude, do you think I would do all that shit to y'all and then move right next door, bro? <laughs> now, we gonna split this plum or not, dog? <laughs> We're in this together, man. It was hectic sometimes. And, of course, always good for some comedic relief. And, of course, this is a joke, but essentially, the joke is that white privilege may or may not exist for you. But if you're poor, it definitely does not exist because you're still poor. And this overture, this overturn, again, criminalizes being poor because... If you are wealthy and you live in a red state, which, by the way, these are the states that are going to, you know, really just go balls to the wall and just ban this shit outright. Texas, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Idaho. I think it's like already 20 states or so are in line to ban abortion. And really the only ones that aren't are California, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, Seattle or Seattle. God damn it. Oregon and Washington like the deep blue states are going to keep abortion legal whereas the red states not even the deep red states just the red states in general are going to outright ban it but if you're wealthy if you're a wealthy person you can just move you can move from Texas to California you can move from Idaho to Washington but if you're poor you can't like all of these congress people who cheat on their wives and get their mistress their mistresses pregnant they'll be able to go get abortions their daughters will be able to get abortions but poor people won't and that again just perpetuates the extreme injustice it's just another arm or another way for conservatives to really just push their ideology because being conservative in america i think that being just conservative in general is horrible because whether it's art whether it's music whether it's film you should always be trying to do new things and bring new ideas to the table and obviously when you're talking about art music um film television it's not as destructive but when you get into conservative politics especially in america what you want to do is you want to continue to perpetuate injustice because that's all America knows. 
is injustice. We were literally the state, the country of the United States was founded on genocide. Christopher Columbus brought his ugly ass over from Spain or from Italy, wherever the fuck he was from. Didn't even land in America. That dumbass had no idea where the fuck he was. And then went on and killed millions of native people. And then you continue with slavery, which we fought a whole war of. The Trail of Tears. I mean, women's suffrage. Women not getting the right to vote until 1920. And then you get a little bit later on. You have Jim Crow. You have Japanese internment camps. It just goes on and on. And then you have the war on drugs. The war on poverty. Now we have the opioid epidemic. The government has always been reluctant to fully crush these systemic issues. And this is the whole point of conservatism. And the idea that we should still be interpreting these laws based off of this dog shit piece of paper that's a couple centuries old, I think is is lunacy because the world is so different. The world is an entirely different place. And America in particular, I mean, the advent of technology has drastically improved how we as a society function. Like it's drastically improved civilization or I mean, definitely improved, but, you know, double edged sword. Of course, and you can't be looking at these highly nuanced cases through such a binary lens. Like I would just think that that these justices of Supreme Courts, the arbiters of morality or what have you, I think that they would be smarter than that. Like I don't give a fuck if you graduated from Harvard Law because these are not smart people making this decision. Straight up. These five judges who are seemingly on board for overturning Roe v. Wade. They're not smart people. I'm sorry. Like, I don't understand how you can think it's smart to overturn something that so much of the country views favorably. But then again, this country has never, never, ever legislated anything, at least in modern political history and certainly in my time, while the rest of the developed world is making college free is covering their citizens with healthcare for free is improving workers rights and ways in, and raising their minimum wage the united states in a country in which all of these policies are overwhelmingly popular refuses to do that the majority of people approve of a single payer healthcare system in some form whether it's a whether it's a single-payer option or whether it's entirely government-sponsored, okay? The majority approves of that legislation. The majority of people approve of legalizing marijuana. The majority of the population approves of raising the federal minimum wage. And yet, this stuff doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because... There are very few politicians who are actively fighting for these policies. I mean, Bernie Sanders is obviously one. AOC has has her moments as well. There are more and more people, more and more like actual progressive people rising up from the ranks. Uh, John Fetterman is one as well. He is running for Senate in the state of Pennsylvania. He's another guy who has some very progressive policies. But ultimately, the establishment is so, the establishment is so deeply intertwined with politics. It's just, 
it's going to take forever to get them out. And that's even if we get them out. And the part of this that is extra insidious, the whole thing with states' rights is a topic that I don't think that we should even be talking about in 2022 because what were what did the states fight for their right to do and if you know history you know that states rights was for the states rights to own slaves which led to the civil war like states rights if you're arguing states rights i know you're a psycho straight up no rational person argues that no rational person argues that beyond the fact that the state or the government regulating what you can do with your body is a gross is a gross invasion of privacy i mean the the historical context is just as insidious like no woman who is looking to get an abortion in a state where it's illegal is just going to not want to get that abortion anymore because banning outlawing it doesn't stop it from happening it just makes it more deadly it just makes it more dangerous it's the same argument when it comes to decriminalizing drug use because when something is criminalized you don't stop it from happening you just get rid of the safe treatment options which is what people need in this case back alley abortions become more prevalent when it's outlawed unsafe abortions whether they're at home whether they're at some shady doctor they become more and more prevalent and you're not just putting the quote-unquote fetus's life in danger you're endangering the wife the life of the mother as well it's the same concept when it comes to decriminalizing drugs if you decriminalize drugs like cocaine heroin and you open up avenues for people to seek treatment whether it's addiction treatment whether it's safe spots for people to administer drugs like they have in europe you can go to a spot and shoot up under the supervision of a medical professional to make sure that you don't fucking overdose and die and then while you're there you can get treatment as well it seems it's it's just it's just such a fucking gross turn of events and it's just it's so fucking shameful to to live in this country sometimes it really is it's just you you can't claim to be the freest country on the planet and then go ahead and do draconian shit like this and it's for reasons like this that i've stopped referring to the united states as a developed country because we are not we are certainly not a developed country in terms of social issues where it we're a super advanced economy we're a highly industrialized nation for sure but you can look at a map of the world no other developed country does not protect abortion at a federal level or at a government level even conservative governments like italy like japan which i believe is a fairly conservative government as well they even allow a path for safe and legal abortions but we don't we don't the leading global superpower refuses to 
put as much emphasis on, you know, furthering social justice as they do with like leveling the Middle East and just flattening the Middle East and causing um, instability in South America. Like developed nations don't do this. I mean, well, they do, unfortunately, but they do it to a lesser degree. Like it's just it, it's so odd. And it's even more insidious because it's like, what's next? What's next? If abortion is not protected, what's to stop these what's to stop these state governments from outlawing gay marriage, from outlawing interracial marriage? What's to stop them from doing that? There really is there really is nothing because if you're going to look at it from a constitutional perspective, they can easily say I mean, they very well could just be like, oh, well, you know, technically slavery isn't um, covered by the Constitution because the founding fathers weren't thinking of it when they wrote the Constitution, despite the fact that <coughs> there's a fucking amend amendment that stipulates that. It's just, we are so fucking pathetic. We really are. Like, it's it's so sad, man. It's so sad. My heart goes out to all of the people who are going to be affected by this and it's just you're you're taking an already traumatic event that women don't want to have to go through like I, that's another thing that's lost on this is the physical emotional and mental toll that some women take on from having to go through an abortion like it's different when you take a pill early in your pregnancy and you know get rid of the baby that way but if you give it a couple weeks i think it's like six weeks or so it's like and to go through with that it's very very taxing it's just it's not something that people are actively going out and doing like these fucking psychos on the right make it seem like people get pregnant just to have abortions it's like no dude they're not that's not a thing that people you know want to do it's not like going out and collecting baseball cards like that one sick bitch was doing where she had like a hundred fetuses in her apartment or something it's like most people are going to just avoid an abortion altogether if they don't have to get one but you know life happens sometimes and it's the unfortunate reality that some people need to go through with this procedure and to strip away the safety of it i feel is just so fucking gross it's a gross invasion of privacy it's a gross overreach by the federal government as well and it's not going to do anything it's not going to do anything productive we're just being set back 40 years because as i already mentioned what's next what's next I mean, how far do they take it with, like, this fucking biblical approach, even though I'm fairly certain, or at least I've heard from people who have read the Bible, that there's nothing in the Bible that explicitly says that abortion is bad. It's just, like, it's a fucking fake narrative perpetuated by these ghouls who try to justify their shitty existences off of a book that we don't even know is true, and also is way more complex than a lot of people would be led 
to believe and like it's just it's so draconian it's so sad it's so sad um i'm gonna try to find a place for you guys to donate to certain organizations i'm not really too sure i'll have to do some research but um of course um it's just it just fucking sucks man it's it's it it, it god it's just so unfortunate that shit like this has to happen in america because like this is an exclusively american problem as 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 are so many other problems that we see on a on a daily basis like it this shit just doesn't happen in other places only in america and yeah with that i'm gonna go ahead and close it out thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me today everything i'm list everything i'm associated with is down in the description box below twitter instagram tiktok um all that fun shit as always subscribe to the youtube channel follow the twitch channel as well i go live every tuesday at 2 p.m eastern um what else what do i usually say to close out these episodes god damn well as always anyway thank you guys so much for hanging out and i'll catch y'all in the next one